you will, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. The message this morning begins with a bit of a warning. I'm going to do something this morning that I don't like to do often. I'm going to take issue, small issue, with some of our English translations of the Bible. And I try not to do it too often because the very last thing that I want to happen is for you to be sitting in your recliner on Monday morning with your Bible open in front of you and for me to have planted some seeds of doubt or questioning of, oh, is, is what I'm reading right? I don't want to do that. Um, Bible translation is hard. Like, I'm not going to take issue thinking that I could have done it better. Um, it's hard to get from the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into another language, much less if the second language is English, which is just so difficult already. And the English translations that we have are outstanding. They're amazing. And the small issues of translation that do exist, fortunately, by God's grace, are never about any game-changing thing, right? With any of the little things that we might quibble over, well, should we translate it as this or should we translate it as this, right? No big doctrine is up in the air, right? The gospel is intact. Who God is, who our Savior, the Lord Jesus is, all of those things are rock solid and, and, and not in question at all. And so most of the time, if in my study during the week I encounter something and I say, well, I don't really like how they translated this, right? Most of the time you're never going to hear it on Sunday morning because I just want to be so careful not to plant seeds of doubt in your mind. But once in a while, if I think that understanding the big picture could be improved, if I think that we might get a little more depth of insight then I will take the bait and I will share with you some of my little quibblings. And they are little, but there just so happen to be two of them in these three verses this morning. Now, we're dealing this morning with the fourth of Peter's four imperatives that I've been telling you about uh, for some time now. Peter opens his letter with just rattling off so many benefits of the gospel. So many benefits that Christians have received, that we have received, because of God's work through his son Jesus on our behalf. And now he has shifted into some of the responsibilities that they have and that we have in living to reflect all that we have received. So we've seen the first three of these commands. The first was to hope. Hope fully in grace. And then we saw the command that we need to be holy even as the one who called us is holy. And last week we looked at this command, this exhortation, this imperative to love earnestly, to love each other with vigor, with energy. And this week we see that we are to long for something. We are to desire something. We are to crave something. It says that we are to long for pure spiritual milk. 
And this is such a great exhortation that Peter gives. There's so much here for us to unpack and to dig into and to seek to have the Lord bring to bear on our lives. If you will stand, if you are able, for the reading of just three verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. O God, by your enabling grace, may we see here what you intend for us to see. May we hear what you intend for us to hear. And O God, may we taste what you intend for us to taste. And by tasting it, by tasting him, May we desire and long and crave even more all the days of our life. Would you come and help us to that end powerfully? In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. So right off the bat, maybe some of you picked up on my first little translation issue that I'm going to raise. Because I told you we've got the fourth imperative, the fourth command or exhortation to deal with here, and that it is long for. But if you're paying attention, it actually looks like, at least in the ESV that we have in front of us, that we've got commands four and five in these verses. Because verse one starts off, so put away. And that sure sounds like a command, doesn't it? It sounds like something that we're supposed to do. It sounds like Peter telling these Christians in Asia Minor what they're supposed to do. Well, actually, put away there, that verb is a participle. Oh, boy. English grammar. I don't remember what grade we learned participles in. A participle is a verb... And it can act like a bunch of things, but for our, for our purposes here, it's a verb that's functioning as an adverb. We see this a lot of times, right? These things that end in ing. If I were to say, finishing up the last of my errands, I called Shay to tell her I'd be home soon. What's the main verb there? It's not finishing. It's called but I called her while I was doing what? Finishing up my errands, right? So the main verb is called. The participle there, I-N-G, is finishing, all right? And so if you've got the New American Standard in front of you, if you've got good old King Jimmy in your lap, they picked up on this, and they translate put away as putting aside or laying aside. They, they captured the participle nature of it. 
And, and I'm not sure why the ESV didn't do that, because earlier in chapter 1, the ESV picks up on the participles and translate them as such. That Back at that first command that we have, to hope fully, right? It was preceded by two participles. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds, participle, being sober-minded, participle, main verb, set your hope. Set your hope fully on grace. So I'm not sure why they didn't do that here. But Peter's not telling them to do two different things. He's not telling us to do two different things. He's got one main command. We're to long for something. And the putting away actually tells us something about how we're to go about longing for that something, how we're to go about desiring it. It starts with us getting rid of the things that are incompatible with desiring and longing for, things that compete with that desire, things that hinder that desire. And Peter lists for us five things that are to be put away, that, we, that are being put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now, I'm not going to go into all five of these in great detail. It might be worth doing sometime. Maybe you should study that. Maybe you should look up some cross-references of other places where these things are mentioned. I'm not going to do that. I want to point out some things more broadly to you about these five. If you'll notice, these five are all violations of the second table of the law. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about the Ten Commandments, commands one through four relate to our relationship with God. Right? Commands five through ten are horizontal. Right? They're about our relationship with fellow man. And all five of these things have to do with the horizontal. Right? Note, too, these are not red-letter sins. These are not... <gasps> pearl-clutching, headline-making, super-duper pagan sins, these are much more tame than that often. Much more subtle. Sadly, they're often much more condoned, even in the church. But they are no less destructive. They're especially destructive to relationships and to community. And as such, if you're thinking back to last week and back to that third command, these five vices are highly incompatible with loving each other earnestly. So they're incompatible with what came before. They're also incompatible with what comes next. Longing for pure spiritual milk. Peter's making this connection. These things have to be done away with if this next thing, if this desiring is going to take place. And in fact, not only do they need to be put away, in a real sense, they have been put away. At least initially, at least partially. And this is another reason why it's important to insist on the participle here. Because with the new birth that Peter's already mentioned twice, with the new birth, with placing faith in Jesus, comes an initial break with all of these things. All these things, malice and envy and slander, they used to hold believers captive. 
They used to enslave believers, and believers, before they became believers, had no choice but to engage in these things. But now, now, because of the new birth, because of having placed faith in Jesus, a decisive break has been made. Their power has been broken. And so part of desiring pure spiritual milk is a continuing to put these things away. A refusal to go back to them. It's like a warning Peter's given. Don't go back to the things you've been delivered from. So this is the first part of how. How would we go about desiring pure spiritual milk? In the continuing to put these things away that are incompatible with it. The second part of the how... How are we to desire, verse 2? Well, our desire is to be like that of a baby. Do be such a baby. Do be like an infant. And this is a fantastic metaphor. The longer I sat with it this week, the better it became. It is so good. It starts off because it's just an appropriate metaphor. This isn't like pulling some random thing and trying to make it fit. No, this is a very appropriate metaphor because these Christians Peter writes to really are like newborn infants because they've recently been born again. Again, I told you, just mentioned it twice back in verse 3 of chapter 1, again in verse 23. So these new, young Christians need life-sustaining nourishment. And they're supposed to long for that nourishment the same way that infants do. So think about an infant and think about that infant's desire for milk. Right? What words come to mind? How about instinctive? Do you, do you have to teach an infant to crave milk? No, they just know to do it. They just know that they need it. And they even know how to get it, which is crazy. It's instinctive. It's also incessant. This desire never goes away for long. They're insatiable. Maybe for an hour they'll be satisfied. Their need is so frequent. Their need, about their need, they are impatient. Right? Any delay whatsoever. You're going to change my diaper first? No, 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 no. Right? Any delay whatsoever is met with the most vocal, impassioned protest from the tiny person. Now, the question is, because this is a metaphor, right? Do these same descriptions apply to your desire? Do they apply to your craving, your longing for, your yearning for pure spiritual milk? Now, part of why I began to love this metaphor even more was when I began to think about the opposite of everything that I just said. Imagine for a moment a newborn baby who never cries for milk. One who doesn't show any interest in eating. No appetite. 
not that interested in nursing or taking a bottle. Let me tell you something. Nothing will get the attention of your pediatrician faster. Nothing will send new parents into a panic faster than a baby that doesn't desire milk. That is a very bad sign. That the baby might fail to thrive. It's why the doctor's always asking, all right, how many wet diapers? How many dirty diapers? Right? Because that's a sign that nourishment has been processed. It's been taken in and sent out, and the body is doing what it's supposed to do. Life is being sustained. Our insatiable longing for pure spiritual milk is evidence of the new birth. And lack of desire, lack of longing, an absence of craving ought to sound an alarm. No less serious than the baby who doesn't want milk. So that's the how. How is it that we're to go about longing for pure spiritual milk? But maybe you're thinking to yourself, all right, question, uh, what exactly is this pure spiritual milk for which we are to long? What do you think it is? I bet you've got an idea. And I want you to hold on to your idea for just a second. Because I actually want to come back to that. I think that's a better place to finish is talking about what the pure spiritual milk is. Right now, let's move on to why we need to long for it. Why is it so important that we long for pure spiritual milk? Look at verse 2. We've got a purpose word that is signaling to us. Long for pure spiritual milk that, that's always a purpose word, long for it that by it you may grow up. Longing for pure spiritual milk will lead to growth, specifically growing up into salvation. I thought salvation is something that just happened and it was done. What do you mean I've got to grow up into it? Well, I've told you and we're going to keep seeing it. Peter's always giving us the past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. Yes, we have been saved. And yes, we are being saved. And yes, one day we will be saved. And it's all true. We were born again in an instant. We, we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus in an instant. But we will spend the rest of our earthly lives growing into all that that entails. It's going to take a while for the implications of our salvation to sink down into our hearts. To show up in our behavior, to be reflected in our lives. And so this is another thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about this week. What does it look like? What does it look like? What, what, what can I give to you to say this is what it looks like to grow up into salvation? 
And the best thing I thought to do was, let's see if Peter's already addressed that. See, that's one of the benefits of, of trying to plow through the Bible in order is we gain some context there. Maybe he's already said what he's talking about, and this growing up into salvation isn't something new. And so I look back at chapter 1, and I think that Peter was describing this process. Look back at chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Y'all, we're growing in all of those things. We're growing in our love for Jesus. We're growing in our ability to trust him. We're growing, oh gosh, I hope we're growing in our joy. I hope with each passing day we're rejoicing more and more at what it is that we have in the gospel. All of these things are ever increasing, and this growth is directly tied to our desire, our longing for pure spiritual milk, which I still haven't told you what it is, but we're going to get there. Now, you want to hear something really cool about this growing up? It's another grammar thing, but I promise it's worth it. This growing up, that verb, is passive. What does that mean? It means that we are not the actor, that we are being acted upon, right? We are being caused to grow up. Just like chapter 1, verse 3, we were caused to be born again. We didn't born again ourselves. We don't grow ourselves. We are acted upon by the Lord. Y'all, that's good news. That is such good news. Because let me tell you, the last thing I need is something else on my to-do list. Something else that I'm responsible for. Something else that I need to accomplish. Oh, great. Now I've got to grow up in my salvation. How in the world do I do that? No, this growth comes with the longing. This growth comes with the desiring. As we crave pure spiritual milk, God is growing us up. But there's a condition. Uh-oh. Right? There's always a catch, isn't there? That seems too good to be true. Verse 3, Peter lists a condition. And we know it's a condition because it starts with if. If this happens, then that will happen. All this is going to happen, Peter says. And I think he means that everything we've looked at so far, the, the putting away of the malice and the envy and the slander, the, the longing for pure spiritual milk, all of that's going to happen if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So is this all up in the air? Is, is the verdict still out? Is Peter wondering? Is he questioning? Oh, gosh, what's going to happen here? No. This is a condition, but this is a condition that Peter assumes has already been met. How do we know that? 
We know that from the way he's written about everything else regarding these Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to believers and he's telling them, I know that you've been born again. I know that you've got a hope and an inheritance. I know that you love the Lord and that you trust in him. So even though this grammatically is phrased as a condition, he is no less certain about it. Now, I picked on the ESV earlier, so let me give the NIV a pat on the back here. I don't do that too often. But they pick up on Peter's certainty. They translate verse 3, now that you have tasted. See, they get it. They know that Peter's not questioning here. Now this tasting, oh gosh, it goes so well with this longing, with this craving. Right? Sometimes you get a taste of something and you just never get over it. It leaves an impression, you, you crave it, you think about it, you pine for it. it. It happened to me once with a hamburger. Gosh, this little hole in the wall, this place in Sausalito, California. And I was searching all over. I could not remember the name of it. And then I found it. It's called Hamburgers. <laughs> the place is about seven feet wide. It's just barely enough for the counter where they make the burgers in this cool rotating grill that's in the front window. And you can see it. Uh, and, you, and you slide down sideways in line and place your order and get your burger. And then you slide back out. And there's no place to eat. So there's a really nice park across the water where everybody takes their burger wrapped in this white paper. They, they've got a shaker full of what must just be magic fairy dust that they sprinkle on it while it's on this rotating grill. Y'all, I haven't had this thing. The last time was in 2004. And I can still taste it. I still crave it. And think about it more often than I am willing to confess. See, Peter understands that type of desire. He knows that once you taste of the Lord's goodness, you're hooked forever. He knows that once you've tasted the Lord's goodness, you'll put away everything else that gets in the way. That list of vices, you know what I realize those things actually are? Those are all attempts at self-generated good. They're all things that we do when we're trying to manufacture good for ourselves. We're, we're trying to rig the system in order to manipulate an outcome that will be good for us. I'm, I'm so envious of this guy. He, he's got this thing that I think that I deserve. And so the child of envy is slander if I talk bad about him. Maybe I'll feel a little bit better if he suffers. Maybe if I talk enough bad about him, he'll actually lose the thing that he's got that I really want and I'll be able to get it. But y'all, if we've tasted the Lord's goodness, we won't have to create our own. Peter knows that once we taste the real thing, 
We won't go after the substitutes. He knows that we'll long for that real thing. We'll crave it. He knows how powerful that desire will be. That's why he gives us this list of vices and he doesn't give us a list of corresponding virtues and say, all right, these are the bad things. Now you need to go out and get busy trying to do the good things. No, he doesn't give us a list of virtues to replace the vices with. He says, do what? Desire. Long for something. Don't get busy trying to produce something. Crave something that is more beautiful. Desire and yearn for something that is more powerfully attracted. Peter knows that will then crowd out all the other things. If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, you will naturally try to get rid of everything that gets in the way. And like a baby, you will instinctively, eagerly, frequently desire and crave pure spiritual milk. Now, are you frustrated yet? Do you want to know what the pure spiritual milk is? Well, it's God's word, isn't it? Isn't it the Bible? Duh. Well, it doesn't say word. Peter just recently spent some time talking about the word. Quoted from the prophet Isaiah, very much about the word of God. But this just says pure, and I'm going to go ahead and throw spiritual in quotation marks, and I'll explain why. Milk, pure spiritual milk. And, and the Greek word there for spiritual, guess what? It's not word. It's not logos. You know logos, right? In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and logos was God. So here's my other quibble. I'm picking on the NAS now, and I can't think of a time that I've ever picked on the NAS. I love the NAS. It's such a solid translation. But the NAS throws word in here. It says, long for the pure milk of the word. But it's not logos. It's a different word. It's related, obviously. It's logikos. Throw that up there on the screen. I think it's up there somewhere. It's the same root, same first three letters gets us both started. But it's an adjective. It has something to do with the word, but it's not the word. All right, so we want to know what the pure, and pure is pure. we got no issue there. We want to know what the pure logikos milk is. So... I get it. I get it why some of the translations said, well, let's just stick spiritual here because that's easier. I get why the NAS said, let's put of the word here because that's easier. Because this logikos word, it's got layer and layer and layer of meaning. And there's no one English word that can capture all that. It has to do with something that's reasonable, something that's rational, Something that corresponds to reality, to the true nature of things. And so, like I said, ESV and NIV both said, um, we're going to call that spiritual. Because <laughs> we can't put 16 words in the place of the one. But spiritual's not great, because Peter, in just two more verses in verse 5, he's going to say spiritual not once but twice. And he uses the normal Greek word for spiritual pneumatikos. So it's not really that. Whatever the milk is, it has to be reasonable. It has to fit with the nature of things, with the new nature of things, 
with the new reality, and the new reality is we've been born again. It's also got to fit with what comes before and after. Whatever pure Logikos milk is, it's got to fit with the putting off of these vices, malice, envy, slander, hypocrisy, and it's got to fit with what comes after, which is tasting the Lord's goodness, which is straight out of Psalm 34. And apparently Peter just has Psalm 34 on the brain because in chapter 3 that Woody read for us today, uh, he's quoting three verses extensively straight from Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 doesn't mention God's word at all. Psalm 34 doesn't say, taste and see that the word is good. It says, taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. So I'm piecing this all together. But a lot of commentators say, well, the milk must just be God's word. Because really, what else is it going to be? I got a little frustrated with one commentator because I've been enjoying him. I've been tracking with him. And then he starts into this and he says, well, yeah, it's the word. Basically, this is just telling us that we should be addicted to the Bible. And I said, ugh. But as I kept reading, it's almost as if his own understanding was unfolding as he wrote because he started off by saying oh well we should just be addicted to the bible but then he kept getting broader and broader in his description he says things like well the word of the lord constantly presents the lord of the word and he says coming to the word is coming to the lord and so even he was as he was saying well i think pure spiritual milk is is the word He's beginning to understand that, well, really, it's, it's the Lord who's presented in the pages of the Word. And that's an important distinction. Now, I struggled to think of a way to illustrate this and to try to get this point across to you. And I came up with something, and it's, it's food-related again, no surprise there. Um, if I were to tell you, I love my air fryer, that might not be too terribly odd to you. Maybe you love yours too. But if I were to tell you, I long for my air fryer. I crave my air fryer. Would that be weird? Yes, that would be a little weird. Because the truth is, I don't actually crave that metal box that sits on the counter. I crave what I get out of it when the timer goes off. I crave the chicken wings. I crave the charred Brussels sprouts that are so crispy and and yummy. To say that the milk we are to long for is the Bible is a bit like longing for the air fryer. Now surely the milk is not less than the Bible. But to say that it's just the Bible is far too narrow. And I think this is important. I think this is important especially for Presbyterians. Because we really love the Bible. We place a, a high importance and value on the Bible. I mean, just look at that worship folder you have in front of you. Look at the liturgy that we have. That thing is saturated with Scripture from beginning to end. 
Now, is that so we can put our fists on our hips and say, we've got a worship service that's saturated with the Bible? Or is that a means to a greater end? Is that why we do that? Do you think that you can long for Scripture? Do you think that you can crave Scripture and still miss something? If you don't, think about the scribes and the Pharisees. Whoever longed for Scripture more than those dudes? Whoever craved biblical knowledge more than they did? I mean, they were serious about the Scriptures. And yet, they rejected the Lord who the Scriptures were all about. Friends, you can be in love with the Word of the Lord without loving the Lord of the Word. And that would be tragic. You can long to read it. You can long to study it. You can master its contents forward and backward. You can know all the minutia, all the trivia. I can long to study it all week long. I can long to preach it to you. But I could still miss the mark. What would make this milk reasonable? What would make this milk fitting for the true nature of things? This word logikos is only used one other place in the, in the Bible. It's used in Romans 12.1. Another place where the translators struggle with what to do with it. Talk, Paul's talking about our worship. Our logikos worship. And so some say spiritual again. Some say reasonable. Our worship ought to be fitting to the new nature of things, to the new reality that the gospel has brought about. Our worship should be like that. That ought to be the thing that we're craving. That's what would be fitting. We've been born again. We've been adopted. Milk that is in keeping with that. Milk that is in keeping with having tasted the Lord's goodness. However you want to end up translating that word, I don't care. The end result is what we are craving is Jesus. As he's revealed to us in the gospel. What we're longing for is him. It's his mercy and grace. It's his righteousness. It's his wrath-absorbing death. It's his resurrection and his ascension. This is what we cannot get enough of if we are a healthy, growing Christian. This is what we've tasted and we can't stop craving for more of it. This is what, as we continue to crave and long for it, displaces the malice and the envy and the slander. There's no room left for that because we're so consumed with this desire. We don't need those things anymore. We don't want them because we've tasted the real thing. So fitting that this craving, this tasting comes as we come to the table. Interesting, too, that taste, if you think about the five senses, 
touch comes close, but there's nothing like taste that requires nearness. You can see from afar, you can hear from afar, you can even smell from afar. You can't taste from afar. There's an internalizing here. This nearness, it's not something that we can accomplish. It's been given to us in our union with him that we are now going to move to celebrate.